You're listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio. Every Wednesday night at midnight. Good evening, you're listening to Dialogues with me, Joe Raleigh. This week I'm speaking with Jock McLaren, who is an Australian psychiatrist who's worked for 25 years in the remote north of the country. He's the author of numerous books on psychiatry, including his Humanising trilogy, Humanising Madness, Humanising Psychiatry and Humanising Psychiatrists. And in each of these books, Jock rigorously questions and critiques the foundations of mainstream psychiatry, as well as its practices. And at the same time, he proposes his own alternative framework for understanding mental disorder and for helping those who suffer from it. So, uh, Jock, thank you for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right. So it's been said that psychiatry as a practice is 50 years behind other medical specialties in the way that it can understand and treat mental disorders. Uh, I was wondering why that might be. That's quite a complex question because it presupposes that we have a correct theory, the correct theory of mental disorder. And my whole case is that we don't. Um, that presupposes, that question as you put it, presupposes that the biological approach to mental disorder is correct, that it's valid, and that we can make progress on it. Uh, as it happens, we have made no progress whatsoever in the last 70 years. We've spent huge sums of money on it, on research, basic research in mental disorder. For example, the National Institutes of Mental Health in the US, the NIMH, disperses about $1.5 billion a year. And that doesn't include the EU or Australia and other countries. So we're talking at least $2.5 billion a year, year after year, and we have practically nothing to show for it. Right. You mentioned the biological approach, and this is the model that mainstream psychiatry operates within um, in its in its. Uh, dealings with mental disorder and its treatments. Um, so could you talk a bit more about what that biological or biomedical, as it's sometimes called, model, what that is? Well, that's an interesting question because um, the, the word model has a very precise meaning in science. I'm not going to go into that now. It's a bit boring. But I did an extensive survey, or maybe about six years ago, five or six years ago, of the psychiatric literature and because I didn't believe that they had a model that had never actually been worked out. And I'm right. There isn't a model of mental disorder anywhere in the psychiatric literature. Mm -hmm. There is this assumption that it is all biological in nature, but that's just an assumption. That's nothing more than that. So we're pouring, say, $2.5 billion a year in research and huge amounts of money and people's lives into something which doesn't even have a model. It isn't a model. Strictly speaking, it's an ideology of model of mental disorder, but it is not a model of mental disorder. Yeah, I, I suppose there are, there are probably different reasons that that biological model has been adopted, or, or as you say, the, the ideology, or at least that approach. But I, 
would assume that one of the main reasons for that is that a similar approach is taken for other medical specialties. So psychiatry is uh, a medical specialty. Um, you know, doctors train to be doctors and then they specialize within psychiatry in the same way that they specialize within neurology or gastroenterology or, or any of the other specialties. And each of those other specialties do take a biomedical model. Well, yeah, the reason this has come about is actually fairly complex. It's a fascinating history in psychiatry, which has never really been done very well. And it's more a question of the sociology of science, but put that aside. In the 1950s, there were three trends in psychiatry. The first one was the classic Freudian psychoanalytic model, which is purely psychological. The second one was this long-standing biological model, which goes back um, really to Roman or even Greek times. Mm. Uh, so that if there's something wrong with you as a person, it must be something physical. The Romans were pretty strong on that. Greeks had a more complex and more nuanced model, but that doesn't matter. And the third one was what's called behaviorism, which was just being lifted wholeness bolus from behaviorist psychology. And uh, so it was becoming very clear in the 70s that psychoanalytic psychiatry was a complete mess. It was a shambles. Uh, and then the power of drugs was starting to, um, to become evident. People were becoming more and more impressed with drugs. But remember, there'd always been this theme. The um, use of psychosurgery goes back a long time. Uh, and in the 1920s, and especially in the 30s, they developed the convulsive techniques. And we still use one of those called electroconvulsive treatment, ECT. Yeah. Uh, and that's still in very wide use in Australia in particular. Uh, so that, that biological approach has always been there, but the other two fell away. Right. And there was also huge amounts of research money becoming available from the drug companies. The drug companies were making, you know, were deriving very, very large incomes. We're talking of now, I, I don't know, in the US alone, it's about $60 billion a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is year after year. They just generate this money. And so they disperse it according to their predilections, and their predilections are biological, naturally enough. Mm -hmm. So there's several trends coming together. One of them is the failure of the other models. Number two is the desperate need to grab something to replace the other models, and biology looked very promising, mm -hmm. especially with the rapid developments in neurosciences. And the third one was the research money was simply available. And, you know, naturally enough, governments, um, when they disperse their research fees, funds, they want to know that they're putting their money on the best horse. Yeah. Well, the, the other two horses had <laughs> been scratched or fallen in a ditch. Right. So there was only biology. And, and also there's this um, need to be seen as, you know, something prestigious. Medicine is prestigious. Let's not mince words. It's very, very successful. Uh, and there's always been a prestige and an aura attached to it. Uh, and psych psychiatry, they're, all, they're always called trick cyclists. I can still remember being called that. Um, and always regarded as you know, sort of slightly disreputable, or even more than slightly disreputable people who lived in mental hospitals way away from anything else. They wanted to come back into the mainstream. They wanted to mainstream themselves. Okay. Very powerful drive. And there's a feeling of a certain kind of validation in one's profession having a, a biological basis. Yeah, because we're you know we're part of this 
very powerful, very, and it is powerful, medicine's powerful, very powerful, very prestigious, um, very intellectual, upstanding, academic profession. And we wanted to be an integral part of that, mm-hmm. not seen as sort of the, you know, the relatives that nobody wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this leads me on to my question. When you're dealing with mental disorders, you're you're dealing with problems that uh, are talked about and experienced within the the mental sphere, as it were. And our understanding of the mind and consciousness is that it in some way relates to physical and physiological, biological aspects of the brain. Now, we don't know exactly what that relationship consists in or of or the causal nature of that. It's an ongoing, long-standing philosophical issue which is fascinating but currently unanswered. And perhaps we may, may never come to a satisfactory conclusion. Perhaps we will. Slightly different issue. But acknowledging the close relationship between mind and body or mind and brain is it not reasonable to assume that if there is a problem with the mental then that might be caused by a problem with the biological that underpins that no I and mean, there's a very strong common sense um you know, uh, approach to this, you know, to what your grandmother knows, and your grandmother knows that if you've had a knock on the head, then you don't function very well for a while, and if you've been taking some sort of intoxicating substance, then your mental function is um, disarranged for a while, and if you've got a very high fever, if you're um, malnourished, if you've got a vitamin deficit, granny knows all this. This is all common sense. This is part of the sort of general perception of the universe that all humans have. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've worked with a lot of Aboriginal people who live you know, pretty traditional lives. These are full-descent Aboriginal people who don't speak a lot of English, and they have similar notions. They understand the concept of mental disorder. They don't have any particular problem with it. Yeah. It's intuitive mm-hmm. for them. So there is this strong common sense element that if something goes wrong with the brain, then um, the brain function, which we assume the mind to be, yeah. then that, that will be disorganized and disarranged. Sure. So, so so you're saying that there are certain physical states that the brain can get in, uh, yeah, whether it be um, altered pharmacologically or, or physically yeah. or damaged uh, yeah. or neurochemically, that will have yeah. an impact on one's mental state um so so accepting that it doesn't seem wholly unreasonable to accept the fact that mental disorders can be seen as having biological origins as in the cause is located or is best understood within that kind of physical biological material framework well that's not quite that would be a very pretty moderate view the 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 mainstream in psychiatry now is um, now become a very extreme view. As I say, when I started psychiatry a long time ago, uh, it, the, the, the mainstream position was very moderate. So you had your biological knowledge, you had your behaviourist knowledge, you had your psychoanalytic or psychodynamic knowledge, and we tried to work within those different um, paradigms. Yeah. But since then, psychiatry has abandoned to, and it's moved to this extreme right-wing, rigid, biological reductionist position. And the position now is this, that 
basic biological sciences will tell us everything we need to know about mental disorder with no questions left unanswered. Right. That's, that's the position, the stated position of the former director of the NIMH in the US. Yes, got it. Um, and that, to me, sounds like a very reductionist attitude. <laughs> <laughs> to, to put it, That's to... exactly what it is. And so reductionism mm. um, is the most successful scientific uh, approach in human history. And reductionism says sim- simply that if you want to understand the behavior and properties of a complex organ or entity or thing, you must understand it in terms of the behavior and properties of the basic elements of which it's composed. So if you want to know why um, uh, why salt dissolves in water, then you need to know something about the polarity of water molecules and the electro, uh, electrostatic uh, state of the um, sodium and chloride ions. And that will tell you why salt disip- sorry, dissolves in water. Okay, so you're explaining it um, using a more fundamental yes. science. Yes, you go down the level... To the basic level, the most basic level. To the physics. Yeah, it'll tell you why salt dissolves in water but not in kerosene. Yeah. And that line of thinking is what I imagine brings a lot of mainstream contemporary psychiatrists to hold the view that the future of psychiatry is, quote-unquote, clinical neuroscience. And I absolutely side with you in my belief that that kind of reductionism is just not appropriate in the field of mental disorder. Because when you're talking about mental disorder, you're essentially talking about consciousness. And consciousness cannot be reduced to brute physical facts in the same way that biology can be reduced to chemistry and chemistry to physics. Or or at least there have been no convincing accounts that it can be. Because to do so would be to ignore that raw, subjective, conscious feeling. And it's precisely on that level that mental disorder arises and presents itself and is known and apprehended and best understood. And if we want to be Descartesian and Russellian about it, then actually our experiences are the only things that we have real direct certainty about in terms of their existence, and everything else is just theoretical. Well, it gets a bit complicated here because um, the fact of the matter is that psychiatry never explored any of these ideas. Uh, They just lump for um, the biological reductionist approach uh, sort of in the about the early early to mid 1970s, it was becoming pretty clear that the others were going nowhere, and this was the only paddle they had left. Mm-hmm. So they grabbed it and they've attached everything to it. They've hung everything now is seen as biological. But when you try and pin psychiatrists down to the nitty gritty, you know the devil lies in the details, and they don't want to know the details. Mm. For example, if you say that mental disorder is rightly reducible to biology, are you then making claims about mental order? Are you then saying something about the normal function of the brain, or are you going to leave that one aside and say that's a separate horse horse of a different colour? That's what they actually do. They say, well, we don't know about that. We don't know anything about mind. Or I say, well, how are you going to talk about mental disorders if you don't know anything about mind? The answer to that would be one of these very circular things. Well, mental disorder is whatever can be reducible to the brain. You say, okay, give me an example of one of the mental disorders that you reduce to the brain. They haven't got any. They don't exist. 
So you go round and round in circles, and then eventually they just get all grumpy and stomp off. Um, you know, and that's why I, when I walk into a meeting, people sometimes leave. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good, actually. I went to a big conference a while ago, and it was, it was about 1,500 people. And <laughs> when it came to morning tea, they had this huge scrum around the morning tea um, tables, a beautiful morning tea in this very elegant hotel. All I had to do was walk at the scrum, and it would part. I felt a bit like <laughs> Moses, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And I was able to get mine and just humming away, pour my cup of tea and pick out the best uh, <laughs> croissants or whatever they were and go away. And then the, cl- the crowd would close behind me muttering and grumbling. So there's, a, there's some definite uh, unseen benefits in having an alternative point of view. <laughs> yeah, I used to, at first I thought it was body odour, but now I realise it's not. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um Okay, so if if uh, psychiatry is, is seeming to look like uh, a unique medical specialty at the very least because it cannot dispense with discussions and recourse to uh, talk of the mind and the mental, then uh, the, the situation becomes altogether more complex philosophically, uh-huh. conceptually, uh-huh. etc. Um, so how do we then approach uh, research into what mental disorder is and where the causes of mental disorder lie and what the problem consists in and how best to talk about the nature of that problem? Well, again, a hugely complex question. You've obviously sat thinking about this quite a, long, a lot. Quite a lot. Um, the, the, answer, they would, the answer that the mainstream people would give was, um, well, we, you know, we are f- um, pursuing down to the, um, the, you know, the most basic levels of, of biological research, and that's where we expect to find the answers. Yeah. Uh, and at the moment, it's all genomes. As you know, that's considered pretty, pretty basic, yeah. uh, and, genome, and gene expression. Uh, and also there's another field of research which is blossoming, research into the effects of inflammation on the brain, and does, the brain, does inflammation in the body cause depression? as a mental state. Um, but the, the cynics, no, sorry, the realists answer to this is, hang on, hang on, I've been following all of this research now for 45 years. Right? That's actually quite a long time because there's been huge advances in basic neuro, neurosciences. And in that time, I have seen any number, hundreds of candidates come up, rise to the top of the um, pond and then slowly sink as everybody rushes off to see the latest one rising. Yeah. And they sink without a trace. And what you find is that it is the research in um, the basic research in the biology of mental disorder is driven by the available technology. It is not driven by an idea. It is driven by whatever technology is available. So if somebody invents this new U-Butte scanner which can do you know whatever they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, you will find that somewhere in the, in the world, some psychiatry, um, some team of researchers get the money and they immediately start applying this technology to their field. Mm. Uh, and this is, so it's technology driven. It is not theory driven. Okay. This is very important. 
Yeah, and it's looking increasingly apparent that the task of developing a philosophically valid account of mental disorder is much more difficult than the prevailing trends in research would have us believe. And while productivity in research looks and feels good, we'd better make sure that we're on the right heading. Now, it's one thing to criticise the biomedical model and the research that it's inspiring, but it's something else entirely to propose a new better model that could allow more fruitful advances in our research and understanding. Of course, there is at least some value in recognising that we do have a problem and in identifying sources of our confusion. But uh, Jock, are you able to suggest an alternative model for understanding mental disorder? Yeah, well, the, um, you'd have to remember the quote from um, Edward Buckminster Fuller, who said, to change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Yeah. And the model that we've got and is work, we're working on, I work on and other people work on, is a psychological model, essentially an information theory model. Now, we've got you know, this remarkably successful technology called information technology, and all we're doing is trying to apply that to the, to the um, human mental function, and guess what? It works. It works brilliantly. So you can, you know, why why bother developing all these different approaches to chemistry of the brain, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, when we've got a very simple model that actually works? You know, and people are so just take for example post this condition called post-traumatic stress disorder, which you would think ought to be um, a pure psychological um, construct. You wouldn't think there's any biology in it. But they are, you know, because a person suffers a severe psychological traumatic event, a shock for want of a better word, and thereafter his mental state never returns to normal. Mm. And so there's all this work burrowing around trying to find the genetic predispositions and the racial predispositions and the intellectual and sexual and psychological, not psychological, etc., etc., etc. All of the genes that could possibly be involved. There's this vast amount of research going on. Mm. All we have to do. All we have to do is postulate that on a psychological level, the person's perception of the world has changed from seeing the world as a pleasant, benign, helpful sort of place to seeing the world as a terrifying place that's out to get you. Mm -hmm. Straight away, in one go, we've obviated all that basic biological research. So so just again to add in there, obviously there is a biological component to that problem but it just may be a a trivial descriptive one whereas the actual uh, business end of understanding and intervening with that sort of problem exists on the level of psychology of course it does but you need to understand a difference which biological psychiatry does not understand and that is the difference between um something acting as a cause and something disturbed as a mechanism so the brain is the mechanism Mm. of the um, emergent mind. So if there is an error in the brain somewhere, then that is an error of the mechanism, but that is not the thing itself. And there's a big, big difference. So what this, the whole approach of the psychological um, model is that the brain in mental disorder is normal. There is nothing wrong with the brain. Yes, yes. Actually, that that relates to a way I like to distinguish broadly between the major branches in medicine, by which I mean 
medicine, surgery, and I would argue psychiatry. And it's based on the fundamental sciences underlying each one. So you've got anatomy, physiology and psychology. So in medicine, you've got doctors who are manipulating physiology, mainly with drugs. And in surgery, you're manipulating anatomy with scalpels and various tools. And in psychiatry, you're manipulating primarily psychology with the use of talking therapies, amongst other things. And a way of understanding the differences there between, say, medicine and psychiatry is take pancreatitis, for example. In pancreatitis, the mechanism of the pancreas is failing and it's not doing its job properly. And that produces a psychological subjective experience of pain. Now, the, 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 the psychology there is functioning properly because that is a yep. p- correct response to that physiological, mechanical abnormality. Whereas in psychiatry, it is the psychology itself that is abnormal. That's correct. So if you look at the brain as an information processor, and I don't know anybody these days who would not look at it as that, mm-hmm. you can have errors at the, purely at the level of the information, not a f- structural problem, right? So there's no hardware problem yeah. in the brain, or what we'd call a wetware problem. It's a, um, it's a software problem. Uh-huh. So you can have a, a errors of input, so the person misunderstands what's being said about him, he actually mishears it, and then reacts badly. You know, did you, were you talking about me? Actually, no, I wasn't. I was talking about my granny. Yeah. Um, things like that. And it can be at the, the level of the um, processing algorithm. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's now we're starting to get a little bit more complicated, but the mental function says that there are rules governing everything we do. So if I'm speaking in English to you now, I'm computing in real time exactly what I'm going to say, and it's all being done for me. So I don't even know what will be the next, the third next word that I actually use in this sentence, <laughs> but I know it'll be correct, and I also know I also know that you will understand it perfectly first time. Yes. So this is all being computed. Now, if you have an, uh, according to certain rules, the rules of the English language, if you have an error of those rules, then you have a distorted output. And if we have an error of the rules that compute our emotional output, then you'll have a disordered emotional output in a normal brain. Right. So it's like a bug in the machine, like a virus. Yeah, yeah it's a bug. It's a bug. It's a virus. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I like that analogy. Pretty simple. <laughs> this is not rocket science. Yeah. It's not rocket science yet. It gets a bit complicated, but the basic process is simple. Whatever is true of your mobile phone or your desktop computer, or nowadays your car, because mm. your car is just a computer on wheels, um, can also be true of the human mind, you know, because we have, uh, we have this hardware or wetware called the brain which computes and that's exactly what it does Mm -hmm. so you can't say oh no the computational model of mind they don't work sure they've got problems but um it the brain is actually a data processor that's what it is Mm -hmm. and all we have to do is apply the analogy i'm sure it's going to be a bit more complicated Mm. but we the computational model information processing model does apply and it has immediate um, predictive value in psychiatry. Immediate. Could one of the ways that the brain is more complicated than a computer be that changes in the programming in that software or wetware has a backward 
kind of changing effect on the the physical matter itself in the same way that you know london cabbie drivers have extensive uh, knowledge of the the streets in london and their their hippocampi grow yeah. and are larger yeah. could could that happen in mental disorder yeah. such that the, the physical um composition of the brain itself then does actually become patho- uh, pathological it could be it could become and the whole point of the um, informational model of mental disorder is that it is self-reinforcing. Right? Okay. So that's terribly important. Mental states are recursive; they act back on themselves, and that could become that could have secondary effects on the mechanism of the brain. But they are not primary; they are secondary. And the, the way to deal with them is not to try and reverse them directly, but to deal with the causes. Okay. So modern psychiatry tries to find brain changes that they can reverse, thinking that right. reversing the mechanism will be sufficient. No, it won't. Never will be. Okay, so it's approaching it from the wrong direction almost. Yeah. Okay, so that actually leads me nicely on to asking you about the consequences of mainstream psychiatry operating on this model which is perhaps not philosophically valid. Uh, you mentioned before the advent of psychopharmacology and electroconvulsive therapy. These are often the mainstay of the treatments for people with major psychiatric disorders. And there's obviously a lot of controversy surrounding these treatments and have been since their um, introduction. So what is your view on these treatments? Well, uh, the problem is that they have now, as I say, they have moved to adopt this extreme we could say, ultra-right-wing reductionist position. And the problem is, they don't have anything left. There's nothing. There's no plan B. So psychiatry is in a really, really serious position. If it can be shown, and I think it can actually be shown, that the drugs, A, don't work, and B, are very expensive and very destructive, then um, we're in real trouble. We're in the most serious trouble. Yes. You know, we're, we're dosing huge sectors of the population. 10% of Australian adults now take an antidepressant, up from 1% in 1991. In New Zealand, that's 13%. And these figures, are wherever you go, wherever you look around the world, consumption of psychiatric drugs is rising inexorably. So if we've got the wrong model, we're in trouble because those drugs, it turns out that they may meet all criteria for addiction. Mm. And getting off those drugs is very, very difficult, which is why most people don't get off them. Yeah, and psychiatry certainly has previous when it comes to um, propounding management and treatments that actually, in hindsight, are quite barbaric and harmful. Um, But, you know, I've worked in psychiatry and I've seen people who have been treated with antipsychotics. And I do see a reduction in the concerning symptoms and behaviours yeah. that these people have. Um, so it, it does It seem superficially like they might be working. They work in the sense that um, morphine also used to work and barbiturates also used to work. So you can sedate people who are extremely agitated uh, and it doesn't matter what the cause is. It's the agitation you're treating, not the um, cause. 
uh, and you can use a whole range of different drugs. Um, I certainly have used morphine when nothing else was available. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean they've got a low blood morphine or there's something wrong with their endogenous opioid systems in the brain. <laughs> it just says that that is a tranquilizer, and when they calm down, you can actually start to talk to them. Mm. Um, and because the whole concept of the psychological model is that mental disorder is self-reinforcing. So if you break that feedback loop with some sort of tranquilizing chemical, then you break the reinforcing element and they calm down and they can start to stand back and look at it objectively. There are powerful biological reasons and evolutionary reasons why agitated people are not introspective, but we don't need to worry about that. Yeah. So if you, you want somebody to be introspective to work out whether he should be getting angry about this, you actually have to calm him down first and walk away, walk him away from the incident itself. Okay. So perhaps there might be some value in using these uh, drugs as an initial yeah. step. I use drugs. Yeah. Uh, there's this bizarre rumour floating around um, that... Uh, I don't use any drugs. This is ridiculous. Somebody actually lodged a complaint with the medical board last year that I don't use antidepressants. Mm. I said, the medical board, this is absolute rubbish. You know, mm. I do prescribe antidepressants. It's just that I only prescribe them for about 1% or 2% of my patients each year, okay. not 90%. Yeah, yeah. You see? I yeah. do actually prescribe them. I do use, I've got at least out of my whatever it is, 175 current patients, I think probably a dozen or more of those, 15, say, are taking antipsychotic drugs. But I use very low doses and I use them for short terms only because I don't believe the drugs are the be-all and end-all mm -hmm. I don't, because I don't believe that. I think the drugs simply calm the person down and bring them within reach of the psychological approach. Whereas for an orthodox psychiatrist, the drugs are it, that it. There's nothing else. We don't have any more. We don't need any more. Right. Because there is no more. Okay. And the issue with that is that these drugs often have very pronounced adverse effects, such yes. as uh, sexual dysfunction, yes. uh, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, yes. um, sedation. Yeah. Uh, Obesity. Akathisia, you know, the full range. The full, if you tell people, as I do, you give them the list of the 10 most common side effects of antidepressants, they almost invariably refuse to take them. Yeah. Almost invariably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, only, they will only take these drugs if they are not told that they're addictive and that they have a huge range of side effects. And by the time they find out, it's too late. They're addicted. Yes. So when a person with mental disorder comes to see you in your office, what would happen differently in that room as compared to what would happen if they were seeing a mainstream psychiatrist? Um, well, we could, there's two, two streams to mainstream psychiatry. Number one is the private sector and number two is the public sector. Okay. Depending on where they go in the public sector, for example, they may go to an emergency department, in which case they will sit there four, five, six, seven hours. Uh, then somebody will come along, a nurse, and will take them off and <coughs> shuffle through a great sheaf of papers and tick boxes. Uh, then the nurse will disappear and a, an hour or two or three later come back and say, here, take these tablets, go home, or you're coming into hospital. Mm -hmm. you see? So there's that sort of um, almost veterinary approach which is now de rigueur in the public hospitals, which yes. I just, I can't abide it. Yeah. 
um, private sector, you go and see a person, you can pay um, up to $735 for the hour, on which you'll get $223 back uh, with your Medicare. And you will be, you know, your psychiatrist will take a history uh, and then will say, here, take these tablets, come back and see me in a couple of weeks at $480 for a review. Blimey. Yeah. We're not mucking around. This is big business. <laughs> yeah. uh, or the psychiatrist may say to the patient, you're seriously depressed. This is a matter of, you know, it, it's an emergency. It's a, a psychiatric emergency. You must go into the hospital immediately and you should have ECT. And the patient is just going to say, oh, well, all right, I suppose. You know, if that's what you think, you're the expert. I've just got to do as I'm told. Yeah. Um, if they go into hospital and then, or maybe they change their mind, maybe, you know, the, the psychiatrist says to the patient, you've got to have ECT. And the patient says, the hell I will. You know, I'm not going into a nut house. Go to hell. Yeah. Uh, and the psychiatrist immediately pulls out a form and detains that patient and he will be apprehended by the police and transferred to a mental hospital and detained in secure setting, you know, a locked ward and he can be wrestled to the ground and given ECT whether he wants it or not. It's as simple as that. That's the law as it exists in Queensland and throughout Australia today. Yes. It's as simple as that. Okay. So you had that ghastly spectacle of the chap, um, chap in Victoria a couple of years ago who was getting three ECT a week um, non-stop, and he had 104 ECT over a period of 34 weeks yeah. until the family took matters into their own hand and took him out. <laughs> of Victoria. And I sat in those mental health tri review tribunal hearings and the psychiatrist said, this is a matter of life and death. There is absolutely no alternative. He must have the ECT full stop. And the tribunal, of course, agreed. Well, yeah. he hasn't had any since and he's no different. Right. So well, it wasn't a matter of life and death at all. It was a matter of therapeutic desperation. What they were really saying is, we don't know what's wrong. We haven't got a clue. We don't know what else to do. Give us authority. Okay. Tribunals, tribunals go along with it. Well, I'd, I'd really like to ask you about ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, because this okay. is seen as almost an iconic, um, uh, by, by I think a lot of people, this iconic practice within psychiatry. And there's a lot yep. of fear that surrounds it. I, I think justifiably, the, the, the frank image of someone having electrodes uh, placed on either side of their head. Um, now, I've witnessed ECT taking place. Um, these days, it's a it's a bit more humane than it used to be. The the, the patient is anaesthetized by an uh, anaesthetist, um, and then they are induced. They have an induced seizure, and um, there is. It's it's often talked about as as you say as being this sort of last ditch attempt when various psychotropic medications haven't worked. Um, Obviously, you, you're a psychiatrist who have, has been practicing for many years. I'm just yep. interested to hear your take on ECT. Well, yes, I have practiced for an awful long time. Um, and uh, I've practiced in a wide variety of settings, um, military setting, prisons, public hospital, security areas, remote areas, including the Kimberley, private practice, Etc. The only sector I haven't practiced in is a university department of psychiatry, but then they're public hospital anyway. Yeah. And I haven't used ECT since I was training. 
right? So we, we were required to learn how to use it, and we were told this is essential, it's necessary, blah, blah, blah. And at that stage, I was still somewhat inclined to go along with what I was being told. And so, you know, you had to learn how to use EC, to get ECT to get your ticket. So I got my ticket. <clears throat> but I haven't used ECT since June 1977. And in that time, I've seen something like twelve to 15,000 patients myself. That means personally assessed and managed. That's a lot of people yes. in a very wide variety of settings. So immigrants, refugees, torture victims, you name it. And there is probably nothing I haven't seen in psychiatry. And I do not use ECT. And I hardly admit people to hospital. And I hardly use any antipsychotic or any anti uh, psychiatric drugs. Very, very low rate of prescription of psychiatric drugs for short term, low dose, mm -hmm. short term only. Now, my claim is that if I can do that, so can every other psychiatrist in the country, but they're not. The use of ECT is rising rapidly in Australia. In your country, well, where you originally came from, Britain, as you probably know, there's been a 90% decline in ECT in the 30 years to 2015. In Australia, in the 10 years to 2015, it went up 87%. In wow. West Australia, in that time, it went up 191%. Now, these discrepancies cannot be explained on the basis of what they call clinical indications. There has to be some other factor. And um, I'm pretty sure I know what it is. The simple fact of the matter is it is a very lucrative part of private practice. In, at the New Farm Clinic in Brisbane, a patient I've seen was quoted $620 per episode of ECT, and they thought she would need 12 to 20 now, the rebate for a psychiatrist is $71.20, I think, for ECT, which is pretty good for two minutes' work. You know, that's not bad. Yeah. wish I could get it. But um, they're actually charging over $200. The patient is paying $140 out of pocket. Okay. People say to me, well, how come you know these figures? Doesn't the College of Psychiatrists know these figures? And the answer is, yeah, of course they know them. Of course they know them. But strictly speaking, I should, I should say, well, you know, I don't know if they know them. You better ask them if they know them. But I certainly know these figures, that Victoria uses ECT six times more than New Zealand. What's the explanation? Well, New Zealand, they don't actually have a private psychiatric sector. Practically all psychiatry in New Zealand is public. And there's no incentive. There is a very perverse financial incentive built into the Medicare benefit schedule, which favours ECT over psychotherapy. And that's all there is to that. So I say I can get the same results in six weeks of outpatient psychotherapy for $520 as a $57,000 five-week admission to hospital for ECT. Same results. Well, this brings this brings us back to to uh, the question uh, that we, we sort of started discussing a few minutes ago, which is what a, a patient or a client would uh, encounter um, when they come and see you that is different to when they, they uh, see perhaps a more traditional mainstream psychiatrist? Uh, well, I spend a lot more time taking a very, very detailed history. You know, and it's just an example. I had to count these things the other day. But I ask each person who comes through my door whether they experience any of the 72 most common phobic objects. So, I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody in the world who does that. Yeah. There's certainly no questionnaire, but I ask personally every person. Yes. And go through their histories. Now I've seen 
I have no idea how many psychiatric histories, other people's histories I've seen over the years. Um, and they're, you know, really, they're getting worse and worse. In fact, a lot of patients in the public system, the psychiatrists don't even take a history. Mm-hmm. The nurses take a sort of, you know, questionnaire-type history, ticking boxes, and a little bit of fluff at the end. And the psychiatrist simply looks at that and writes a prescription. And I, I just appalled. I just said, this isn't psychiatry. Mm-hmm. This is not psychiatry. You know, vets look after their patients better than that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then, so it's about really understanding your patient in front of you. Yeah, um, so I, I put a lot of emphasis on their family background, their personal development, school record, work record, social record, everything. And then at the end of it, there's a, quite a big section on personality assessment. Yeah. Um, and you've got to understand who is this person in the total context of his life. Yeah. Uh, and naturally, you know, you're trying to do that. You've got to go through this in one hour. I push them. And I, time and time again, patients who have seen psychiatrists say, you know, I've been seeing psychiatrists for 20 years. They've never asked me any of these questions. Yeah. yeah. Time and time again, I've had patients at the most prestigious centers say that. You know, I've, they've run out of money. They have to go and see a bulk billing psychiatrist. And they say, I've been seeing Professor So-and-so at the, you know, XY center. For the last 15 years, I've had 12 admissions to hospital. He never asked me any of these questions. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and what do you see as being, uh, what value do you see in the relationship between you and the patient? The personal relationship is very strong. It's very intense. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's all there is. So, you know, to me, seeing a patient week after week after week, that's critically important. You can't just go along to your psychiatric appointment and see a different doctor every every month, you know, which is which happens all the time yeah. in the public system. Yeah. So it's, to me, it's it's this is the essence of understanding who this person is. Yes. You know, if you're going to see, um, as I've done many times, seen people who've been charged with serious offences of child molesting or that sort of stuff, um, your first reaction is, you know, this person is a bit of a grub. You know, mm. I really don't want to be in the same room breathing the same air as this. But then yeah, that's your job. That's what you do. But mm. once you go into the detail, you realise this is a human being. Uh, um, and very often they are serious victims themselves. But if you don't ask, you won't know. Yes. yes. And when you do ask, you find out. So the chap at the moment, he's 22 years of age, and he's been seen at um, hospitals in two countries. Uh, he's been in hospital about six times, totaling maybe eight, ten months altogether. And it's only having seen him weekly for quite a few months that we are now starting to get to the basis of it, that he is tortured. He is intensely religious, which hospitals don't ask. He has an intense, very old-fashioned religious belief, and he is absolutely tortured by um, sexual desires, which he regards as abhorrent. And Mm. so he does odd things. Yes. Yeah, he does odd things, and so that gets him into mental hospital, and they are oh, schizophrenic, give him the drugs. Yeah. It doesn't work. But it's taken me an awful long time of you know, hard, hard work to get to the point where he's prepared to say, actually, this is what's going on in my head. Yes, yeah. And I can imagine that's 
where a lot of the sax the satisfaction in the job of a psychiatrist comes from i've I've worked a little bit uh, within psychiatry and um, certainly in that limited experience it's hugely rewarding to feel yourself connecting with somebody who for whatever reason uh, may be difficult to connect to you know they might be very guarded or, or or paranoid or just the nature of the experiences they're having makes them uh, not sociable <laughs> um, and, and I think you, you can feel when you're connecting with somebody and when there's a mutual understanding and doing that in such difficult interpersonal circumstances is a really wonderful thing and I think it's in those circumstances when I've really felt myself uh, encountering mental disorder and having at least a degree of empathy and understanding as to what is going on in the head of somebody who's having these terrible experiences and and that just gives way to sympathy well yeah then you've got to sort of keep that under control so this chap i saw about two weeks ago he's a 45 year old man he missed a couple of appointments, which is very annoying because I don't get paid if they come, don't come for their appointments. Okay. Uh, and he came in snapping and snarling. He was 45 years of age. He's about 160 kilos. He's covered in tattoos. He's got foul breath. Uh, and he was badly dressed. And his teeth are rotten. And he sat down and told me he didn't want to see any more effing shrinks. They're all effing useless, blood-sucking, blah, blah, parasites. And I thought, yeah, that's fine. Can we get on with the history? Mm. And after about 40 minutes, he just sat there um, crying his eyes out over the most grotesque uh, sexual abuse at the hands of his parents. Parents, plural. And he'd never spoken about it, and, you know, he'd been drinking, and he'd used a lot of drugs, he'd been in jail, and he'd had a couple of hopeless marriages, and half a dozen kids around the place who didn't want to know him. Yeah, so, you know, buried in under this pile of tattooed blubber, there is a wounded human being, and it's our job to find them, Um, even when everybody else says, oh, you know, piss him off, he's just a bloody psychopathic, drug-abusing, child-molesting dog, piss him off. Well, you know, even that sort of dog's got to have a second chance. Yeah, absolutely. And I I feel as if, understandably, there's just a lot of fear and suspicion and uh, assumptions and presumptions and prejudices that surround the layperson's attitude towards people with mental disorder. Well, Um, see... He's pretty exceptional because the majority of mentally disordered people don't have criminal records mm-hmm. uh, and they don't um, deserve them. They haven't got them and they don't deserve them. So, you know, equating mental disorder with violence or mental disorder with criminality or deceit or anything, that's wrong. Uh, you know, just going back to that chap, one of the, the values of being in private practice as a bulk billing private practice is that I can actually see those people because, firstly, um, you know, um, fee-paying private practices won't see him because he didn't have any money. But even if he did, they wouldn't want him in their waiting rooms. Um, but the second thing is, he, if he goes into an institution, he's labelled, he's dead, he's cactus, yeah. before he's even set foot in it. Because the prejudice that goes around um, is, is just unbelievable. People just look at the file and say, oh, God, no, not him again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so you can actually see them. If you have a... 
a small solo private bulk billing practice buried in the suburbs. He only had to walk about 10 minutes to my office from his house. Uh, and, you know, it's familiar territory, it's familiar surroundings and everything. There's no security, there's no locks, there's no guards. Uh, he can sort of feel reasonably comfortable and, and able to trust. So there is a value in this model of taking psychiatry out to the coalface where it's needed rather than sitting in institutions with big walls and locked doors or sitting up in the 18th floor of a tower in um, you know, an expensive part of the city. Yeah, absolutely. Is, is there anything that... I'm just wondering, people at home may benefit, any, any experience you have that people at home may benefit from in their encounters with people who are suffering from mental disorders um, in, in terms of just being able to empathize and understand and perhaps help them. I mean, you talked about the fact that you're encountering these people who are perhaps unsavory characters superficially, um, uh, and it's your job to to spend time with them but you know obviously you chose to go into this job so i think it it would have been there before you were you know being paid to do that and and you were obliged to do that um i think the you know the the most important um thing for the, the ordinary citizen is don't prejudge just remember there but for the grace of god go i People want to make out that the fact that they're they're succeeding in life or they're not mentally disordered or they're, you know, handsome and heroic and intelligent or that, they try and make out that this is because of their superior moral equipment, that they do this by virtue of being better people. And, you know, conversely, if you stumble or you're a drunk or you're depressed or whatever, whatever, um, then that's because you're morally defunct. There's no truth in this. Success is very largely a matter of luck. And we see this in the military in particular, where you know, the more senior officers and the senior NCOs, um, uh, they treat injured soldiers and mentally distorted soldiers in particular, they treat them so badly. You, know, you wouldn't believe how badly they are treated. It is just, just, just brings tears to your hardened eyes at times. And... The attitude is, you know, you're weak, you're letting the side down, you're a dog, we need to punish you to make you toughen up, to man up and get back into your uniform, blah, blah, blah. You know, and the converse of that, the the unstated other side to that coin is, I'm not weak, I'm strong, I'm intelligent, I'm heroic, I'm, you know, a real man, I know how to conduct myself. That's crap. That's absolute crap. That just means they've had the luck never to get injured, never to get hurt. They've had a charmed life. And so people have got to understand that. There but for the grace of God go I. So don't judge. Just listen and try and understand that, you know, it could have happened to you too. You, know, um, you too, lady, you could have been brought up in an incestuous family and then, you know, where would your superior moral judgment be? Absolutely. Got to remember this. Yeah, Absolutely. That's fantastic. So, um, Jock, listen, uh, unfortunately, we, we have come to the end of our yep, time, uh, but it's been wonderful and fascinating speaking to you, and I'm so grateful for you uh, okay. agreeing to come on the show. It's been great. That's my pleasure. 
You've been listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. You can download the podcast by searching for Dialogues on your podcast app. And email us on dialogues3cr at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Just search Dialogues 3CR.